and one way or another we'll catch up because time does that. Why are you laughing? Because you um, took another course from me. Yeah, yeah. Um, we were behind in that course too, but we had an infinite number of things to do. Do you notice that um, Prue took a class from me last semester called Thinking About Infinity? And um, so we thought about it and we didn't get to the end of it, surprisingly. <laughs> um, but among the people we read a decent amount of was Aristotle. Um, and it is actually interesting that we didn't look at any of the stuff we're looking at um, here, but it's interesting that um, Aristotle is also talking about um, his version of infinity when he talks about money. Um, that is that um, the difference, again, the difference between use and exchange value um, is the difference between things that are finite. Um, does anyone know the Tolstoy story, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Um, maybe I'll, I'll swap it in for something. I also wanted to ask you guys if you had a desire to swap. Um, I really like Roxana, which is the Defoe novel we're reading. Um, but uh, since almost no one had read Robinson Crusoe, we could do that instead if um, that's something that you all would want to do. You're shaking your head, Ian? I, I'm just ambivalent towards it. Uh, towards the whole book. I haven't read it, uh, but I'm. I have no opinion as to whether we switch. Okay. But the but no tending towards negative. Um, it looked like. Yeah. It, it. My son was in school in France, and he was taking a math class. It was the only, um, t t uh, the only uh, math he'd ever taken in France. And uh, there, was a, there was a question on the math quiz, is zero a, um, a positive or a negative number? And the answer is? Either. Yeah, that's the American answer. It turns out the French answer is that it's both. So he got plus zero and also minus zero on his answer to that question. <laughs> um, so it looked like you were doing a minus zero there, Ian, for Robinson Crusoe, not a plus zero. Um, value. Sorry? still doesn't change the value. I don't know. The French might think it does. <laughs> it's a direction. Okay. Exactly zero. <laughs> exactly zero. Oh, exactly zero, but faced which way? Okay, does any, would anyone like to do that? Right now the default is we'll do Roxana. Anyone interested in doing Robinson Crusoe instead, speak now or forever, hold your peace. Okay, hold your peace. Good. We'll, we'll um, keep it up. Um, You're wedded to Roxana. Sorry? You're wedded to Roxana. <laughs> Um, her husbands are so awful that I really hope not. Um, her many husbands um, are so awful that I really, really, really hope not. Um, okay, so uh, just we're going to look today at um, the um, Midas story in Ovid, um, but first we'll get there by looking at what Aristotle says about Midas. Um, the story, um, Ovid is writing um, 200 years after Aristotle, um, 300 years after Aristotle. Um, and uh, so the story that he's telling would be like if we were to retell now a story from the 17th century or from the 18th century. Um, and, um, but it's an old myth, it's an old story, and um, the point of the story um, is the same. So if you go back to the Aristotle um, that we were looking at yesterday, um, there's a paragraph that begins, um, um, when the use of coin had once been discovered. Um, and 
that's where he um, begins to talk about Midas, um, or talks about Midas. He doesn't talk much about him. Um, but again, the idea here is that, that once you have coins, once you have money, um, once um, money is something that you can accumulate, um, then um, social relations change and people's desires change. If you only have goods, then um, there are only so many goods that you need. And if you can trade others, that's fine. Um, but eventually, this is what we were talking about yesterday, trading um, for others, trading with others makes you want to get more and more of things you can trade with. And eventually, that turns into getting the thing that's really easy to trade with, which is money. And um, that's, uh, that's what the use of coin is. He says in the previous paragraph at the end of it, um, when the inhabitants of one country become more dependent on those of another, that is, when you have um, trade between countries um, of the sort that is much in the news now, um, and they imported what they needed and exported what they had too much of, money necessarily came into use for the various necessaries of life are not easily carried about. So if you want, um, uh, if you have extra pork bellies and you want to trade them to someone who has extra flat screen TVs, it's kind of a pain to go around um, looking for people who are carrying flat screen TVs that they want to get rid of, carrying your own pork bellies that you want to get rid of. Um, do people know about what's called the lucky strike economy? Is that not a familiar term? Do you know it? Cigarettes. Well, that's a good guess, and, the, and, and it's a true guess. Um, so in World War II, right after World War II, um, when Germany was completely impoverished and um, there was almost nothing that you could buy, it's also um, a lot of prison economies um, work on cigarettes also. Um, cigarettes became the money in the black market. That is, things were traded for cigarettes and um, what people would do is if you had a pack of cigarettes, you were rich, a really bad thing to do would be to smoke them because that would be burning money. Um, but what you could do is you could trade cigarettes to other people for um, stuff that they had, and everyone wanted cigarettes, and if they had extras of anything, they would trade them for cigarettes for preference because you could use cigarettes um, to buy anything that you wanted. So this, as, um, this occurs a lot in prisons. Um, I think a little bit less now than it used to. Um, but um, in Germany, right after World War II, um, lucky strikes, which were, which were small, they're unfiltered, um, and they were popular. Um, and American soldiers got them in their... Um, provisions. Um, they got a certain number of packs of Lucky Strikes a week, and it was like they were getting money for the black market. They weren't supposed to use it that way, but of course they did. Um, but the point is that the reason Lucky Strikes work is that they're easily, um, you can carry them around really easily. Um, pork bellies you can't carry around really easily. Flat screen TVs you can't carry around really easy, but Lucky Strikes you can. Um, so that's what Aristotle is saying um, 2,300 years earlier, for the various necessar necessaries of life are not easily carried about, and hence men agree to employ in their dealings with each other something which was intrinsically useful, that is, could be put to use, 
and easily applicable to the purposes of life, for example, iron, silver, and the like. Of this, the value was at first measured simply by size and weight, but in process of time, they put a stamp upon it to save the trouble of weighing and to mark the value. So here he's describing how coins were invented. That first it was gold and silver or uh, metal or iron, um, which was easy to carry around, um, but then you still had to weigh it. Um, so you had to say something like, I have an ounce of, of silver here. Um, and I would like to buy um, um, two um, cartons of eggs. And, um, but they would have to know that it was an ounce of silver, so they had to weigh it. Um, do you know why Archimedes said Eureka? Does anyone know the, um, what he Eureka'd about? Do, do people know about the story that Archimedes was taking a bath and suddenly he jumped out of the bath screaming Eureka? Um, and they say in, in, in more colorful versions of the story, ran down the street. Um, anyone know what Eureka means? It's Greek for I have found it. I figured it out. So he's taking a bath and boom, he figures it out and he's so happy that he goes running um, down the streets. Um, what had he found, Ian? Um, he found a way to measure the, to determine the density of an object by, uh, to determine the volume of an object that was in irregular shape mm -hmm. by submerging it in water and measuring the displacement. Yeah, um, and it, it's, he didn't actually submerge it in water, he floated it on something and, he, and the displacement was how far down it went. So he was taking a bath and the bath overflowed. Um, and that was what, um, he got into a tub, it was full, um, he got in the way we all do sometimes, hoping that it's not going to overflow, and it did. And, um, but his response to that is, yes, I can now figure out whether something is gold or not gold, um, because even though it's got a shape that makes it really hard to figure out the volume of this thing, um, what I can do is I can fill a glass of water to the very brim and then with a, with a little piece of wood floating in it and then when I put the gold on it or the not gold on it, that'll press down on the, on the floating wood and the water will overflow. And if I measure, are you checking whether I got this right? If I measure how, go ahead and check because you might be right. But I, I I just remember the story I've heard, but I think... No, no, go check. Go check. I wouldn't want to mislead you. Um, so when you see how much water um, overflows, it's overflowing either way. When you see how much water overflows, um, you are then getting the volume of the thing that you've put into the water. It's displaced... Um, actually, I guess you're... No, I think you're right. It displaces its own weight, not its own volume. So you're right, he, you do just put it in the water and just see how much water overflows. Um, um, so if you get into a full tub, the amount of water that you're gonna, that's going to overflow the tub when you get into it is exactly the same volume as you are. Um, so he does that with a piece of gold, um, and um, if it displaces too much water, then that means that it's not gold because it's something lighter than gold. Gold is a very, very heavy metal. Um, actually, I think, is lead heavier than gold? They're right, they're like within one of each other. And chemists, no? 
I think they're, they're, they're one apart on the periodic table. I think there's one thing between them. Um, and lead may be heavier than gold. Um, but at any rate, you can tell um, whether it has the right volume for its weight, the correct volume for its weight if it's gold. And that's what Archimedes figured out um, and said Eureka about. Um, so um, instead of doing that and possibly having um, um, something which is not gold but looks like gold, you start stamping um, metals. Um, stamps and seals first came from um, showing they were like signatures. Do people know that? That is that you would put your seal on something and seals were really, really hard to make and um, they were very expensive to make and very intricate and if you then um, so if you owned a seal, it was like having a password now to your account, um, to your to your account online. Um, and so if you own the seal, or it's like when you switch Facebook um, um, accounts and you just have to click on the on your user pick if you're switching accounts. That's what a seal was like back then. Um, so that for Aristotle is um, his description of where um, coins came from. Um, and then once you have coins, what you have is something that's really attractive um, to misers. And that's when he tells the story of Midas. So he says at the end of the next paragraph, um, indeed, or halfway through, indeed, riches is assumed by many to be only a quantity of coin, so just a bunch of money, because the arts of getting wealth and retail trade are concerned with coin. Others maintain that coined money is a mere sham, a thing not natural but conventional only, because if the users substitute another commodity for it, it is worthless, and because it is not useful as a means to any of the necessities of life, and indeed, he who is rich in coin may often be in want of necessary food. But how can that be wealth of which a man may have a great abundance and yet perish with hunger, like Midas in the fable whose insatiable prayer turned everything that was set before him into gold? Um, so there the question is, is money valuable or not? And um, the answer is, what kind of value does it have? Is it, it has one kind of value, but not another kind of value. What kind of value does it have? Exchange, Exchange value. And what kind of value does it not have? Use. Yeah, unless you use a dime to unscrew the battery compartment or something like that, um, it has very little use value. You know, a fistful of pennies has use value if you are um, a boxer and you're trying to cheat. Um, there are some things that coins have use value for, but really not very many. Um, parking meters, they used to have use value for. Um, that is, it, you had to have a coin because that would also, or vending machines, the coin, the physical coin did something in the machine. It interacted with the mechanism. So there's a little bit of use value in the coin. Um, I mean, you're still, or does it have both because you, you so if you can't. still like having a transaction. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's mainly exchange value, but if a, if a parking meter says quarters only, then exchange value isn't the only thing that counts because if you try to put in two dimes and a nickel, has the same exchange value as a quarter, 
but it can't do what a quarter does, which is engage with the mechanism of the parking meter. So there's a little bit of use value to that quarter in that um, action of putting a quarter into a meter. Um, talking about use value and exchange value oh, it keeps reminding me of the anecdote from uh, Depression era Germany where they underwent hyperinflation yeah. and people started burning money because it was more valuable as a fuel for burning than yeah. it was as actual money. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's a great example. Or there's the uh, famous fourth grade joke, which I'm sure you've all heard, which is um, a guy's in a bathroom stall and uh, he's done, but there's no toilet paper and there's someone in the stall next to him. And so he says to the guy in the stall next to him, hey, could you change a five? No, you don't get it. You do get it. You're just too disgusted. Um, all right, sorry. Did you know that joke before? You're going to get diseases. What? You're going to get diseases. See, it's, you don't know where that money's been. You really don't know where that money's been. Don't put it in your mouth. But that's going to get flushed down the toilet. It's okay. Um, probably not good for the pipes, um, but flush down the toilet. So that has use value. So, yeah, burning money might be a less disgusting version of it, but this one is vivid. Um, and that's what would happen to Midas. Think about what happens when he touches toilet paper. <laughs> it turns to gold. All right, so let's look at um, the Ovid version of um, the story, um, which is on, on, the sh on the same sheet. Um, so just so you know, as I, I mentioned this before, but to remind you, um, this plus the Spencer are the hardest things we'll be reading in the original. Um, just because they're in um, an English which is slightly older than Shakespeare's. And um, Spencer in particular, not only is his English slightly older than Shakespeare's, um, he was about 15 years older than Shakespeare, um, but he also wanted to sound old-fashioned for his time. So he's writing an English which is him wanting to sound like it was written a couple of hundred years before. It actually doesn't sound that way to his audience. It wouldn't have sounded that way 200 years earlier, not even slightly. Um, but it's intentionally archaic. Anyhow, Spencer on um, the Cave of Mammon um, is, uh, you know, you'll be able to follow it. Um, so this is Golding's translation of um, Ovid's Metamorphoses. Does anyone know what Ovid's Metamorphoses is, what that book is? Prue. I mean, I'm reading it in other class. Oh, you are? Oh, in um, Tark? Yeah. What? yeah. Okay, so good, perfect. Okay, it's a book. It's a book. Go on. It's like a poem. I don't know. What, yeah. What about? What What's it about? It's just a bunch of, uh, like, mythological stories, I guess. It's almost like a compilation. So, like, it starts off with, like, a creation myth, and then it goes into, like, the swan and a bunch of all these. They're kind of, like, disjointed. Actually, I don't think they're, they're, they're disjointed. They're jointed is what I would say, rather than disjointed. Um, so what it is, is Ovid is telling a story that begins with the creation of the world. And um, the story is essentially... Um, the story of how things got to be the way they were. So does anyone know Just So Stories, um, Roger Kipling's Just So Stories, how the elephant got his trunk, 
um, how the lion got his mane. Is this familiar to you? Um, so that's, that's um, uh, Kipling doing what myths always do, which is they look at something in the natural world and they tell a story about how it got to be that way. But the story is always a story which has um, um, human or anthropomorphic figures involved. So um, famous story in Ovid is the story of Echo and Narcissus. Do people know that? Um, so Nar what the, uh, what's the story of Narcissus? Um, this is going to be like very general. But like That's okay. Narcissus um, is very... I think he's chasing after the nymph Echo. No, other way around. Other way around. Yeah. Okay. Echo's definitely, definitely him. empowers women for a little while. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so Echo's chasing after him, and I think the way that she devises to like trap him is like he a lake appears, and he looks at himself in the mirror of the lake for so long that I think he either falls in or she's able to trap him. I, I really love this version of the story. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's, <laughs> do you guys know Angela Carter retells lots of great stories? Um, so she, has, she, tell, she retells a lot of fairy tales, and they're really wonderful. Um, she's a 20th, she died in the 20th century. She's a 20th century writer, a really wonderful writer, and she retells fairy, fairy tales in a kind of 20th century style with 20th century psychology. But they're fairy tales, so she's got a great retelling of Beauty and the Beast and so on. So I think you've kind of done that with Echo Narcissus, which I really like. Okay. Um, so the story is, do people know what narcissists are? Um, no one knows better than I what a narcissist is. I am the champion knower of narcissism. Um, so a narcissist is someone who's in love with themselves. Um, and it comes from the story of Echo and Narcissus. So just the um, brief version um, of this is that um, the blind prophet Tiresias um, is asked by Narcissus's mother, um, Will he have um, a good life or not? Um, and Tiresias says he will if he does not come to know himself. Um, a really interesting thing to say because it, according to Socrates, um, again 300 years earlier, 400 years earlier, um, the goal of philosophy and the goal of life is that you should know yourself. Know yourself is Socrates' motto. Um, but Tiresias says he will have a good life if he doesn't come to know himself. And so no one really knows what that means, but Narcissus is um, this gloriously good-looking guy, and everyone falls in love with him, male or female or hermaphrodite. Everyone is in love with Narcissus. And he is contemptuous of everyone. He's interested in no one. Um, these little, little people who are in love with him, why should he care? Um, he's kind of a narcissist. And um, so he goes out hunting. That's what, he what, that's what he really likes to do, is to go out hunting. And um, so one day he's out hunting, and the nymph Echo, um, who is a human being, but she has been um, deprived by the queen of the gods, Juno, or Hera in the Greek version, of the power to originate speech. 
So what happened was she told Juno a lie about where her husband um, Jupiter was. Jupiter was off with um, a young woman and um, Echo and asked Echo to distract his wife, and she does. And when Juno finds out about this, she says, you use your voice so well that now you will only speak when spoken to, and you can't originate anything. So Echo can't speak, but she can echo. So here's a little myth about where echoes come from, and that's the first part of the story is where do echoes come from? They come from this punishment that Juno submitted Echo to. So then she sees Narcissus and um, she totally falls in love with him, um, but she doesn't know how to speak to him. And so she's in hiding. And Narcissus says something and she echoes it. And Narcissus then says, who's there? And she says, who's there? And then in a famous moment in Ovid, who is a dirty, po very dirty poet, um, um, Narcissus says, um, why don't you come here and let us meet? And the word in Latin for let us meet, anyone take Latin? Um, so the, the, um, what he says is coe amus, which is just Latin for let us meet. The root of that word is coere. Um, which is to go together, or to come together. So he says, koeamas, let us meet. And she replies, Ovid says, with joy, koeamas. Um, the modern English word that comes from koire, anyone? Coerce. Yes. So he says, let us meet, and she echoes that as, let us fuck. Um, and they both, they do mean the same thing in Latin. It's like, it's like a Beavis and Butthead moment. Um, uh, she said Uranus or, um, do you guys know Beavis and Butthead or are you too young for that? Um, it's like a South Park moment. Here you are in skew. And, um, so the point is that something that could be thought of as dirty, but most people with clean minds wouldn't, um, it's the kind of thing where someone might say, Oh, look, she said, come. Um, she said, I'm coming, ha, ha, ha. Um, so that's essentially, that's almost the same joke um, that, that Echo is making. Um, so um, she is really, really, really trying to get Narcissus, who's so beautiful, to come meet her. Unfortunately, Narcissus then passes by a pool of water, and he looks inside the pool, and there is a gorgeous boy looking back at him utterly gorgeous. He cannot believe how gorgeous this boy is. And so he just looks at the boy and he falls in love with him. And um, so he reaches down to kiss him and the boy reaches up to kiss him. But as soon as they start kissing, the surface of the water is broken and the boy disappears. And he draws back and the boy is back, but he's drawing back. And then Narcissus says, ah, it's my reflection. Alas, I am so in love with it that I cannot tear myself away. And he just gazes and gazes and gazes at this boy and gets thinner and thinner because he can't get away. And just um, kind of um, turns into, um, he becomes so emaciated and so um, um, uh, without substance that he turns into a flower. And the name of that flower is the Narcissus. And what narcissi, what those flowers do, is they grow by bodies of water. And when they get um, tall enough, 
they're um, um, they they droop, um, and so it looks like they're looking at themselves in bodies of water. So this is the myth of where this flower comes from. So people saw this flower, and eventually they came up with a story where that flower was once a gorgeous boy that fell in love with its own reflection. And in the meantime, Echo, once Narcissus pines away, Echo pines away herself, and she loses her body and becomes only a voice. And you will often hear, you'll often find pools of water in mountainous or hilly territory where there are lots of echoes. So here is something that we're very familiar with, and a myth is given in which there are two actors, two um, people who are acting, who are working, who are interacting in the story, and because of their interactions, one turns into a flower and the other turns into a voice that can only repeat what others have said. Um, so all of Ovid is like that which is to say that Ovid is, the amazing thing about the metamorph metamorphoses is that he is beginning with the beginning of the world, and then everything we see in the world, he tells a story of how it got there. And the story comes from the whole spectrum of Greek and Roman and Etruscan and some Egyptian mythology. And um, so everything that you see around you um, is why, why some trees grow, grow together, for example. All of that is told by Ovid. Um, so it's a story, a kind of mythological story of worldly phenomena that we um, are interact with every day. So the story of Midas, and one thing, and the reason I say it's jointed rather than disjointed it's is... It's not like Paradise Lost where it's like a plot. No, but there like is... That, it's jointed in that way. Yeah, it's disjointed in that way, which is it's a whole bunch of stories, and as with Echo Narcissus, I can tell you that story and just pick it out, and it's a full story. However, I did tell you that it was Tiresias who told him, um, told his mother he shouldn't come to know himself, Tiresias comes in because the previous story was about Tiresias and how he was blinded. So here's the story about Tiresias, and then the um, transition to Echo and Narcissus is, and here's something that happened to Tiresias. Someone asked him, what will happen to my son Narcissus? And then we're off on another story. But Tiresias is the joint between the story about his life and then the story about Echo and Narcissus. Um, and then that will lead to another story. So it's kind of like Lost. That is, it's an incoherent, long-form TV show set of myths, um, but they are all connected. Um, each one connects to the next. They're not all connected to each other, but each one connects to the next. And um, that is, that's why it's jointed rather than disjointed. But it's not, you're right, it's not a full story. So here he's telling a story, which again we go to right in the middle. Um, which is the story of um, Midas. Um, so um, first we're hearing a story about um, Solanus and Bacchus. And, um, the fr and so if you just go to the um, top of that page, which you have, I really hope. Um, it's the same um, uh, file as the Aristotle. So a plowman found Bacchus, found him reeling both for drunkenness and age, 
and brought him bound with garlands unto Midas, king of Phrygia, unto whom, and I'm going to stop at the line ending so you hear the rhymes, unto whom the Thracian Orphe and the priest Eumolphus coming from the town of Athens erst had taught the orgies. So um, Midas knew about the orgies. He knew about um, uh, religious and sexual mysteries. And now we have this character Midas who comes in. Um, when he knew his fellows and companion of the selfsame badge and crew, so he recognized Bacchus when he knew him, upon the coming of this guest, he kept a feast the space of twice five days and twice five nights together in that place. Um, the form here, the poetic form, is something called fourteeners, which are 14-syllable lines um, in iambic pentameter. They're an old kind of English poetry. Um, no one, almost no one writes fourteeners anymore. Um, the poet James Merrill does um, at the end of the 20th century. He wrote some um, poems in fourteeners, and um, Blake, uh, William Blake, used fourteeners. You don't have to know this, obviously, but this is interesting fact. Um, fourteeners eventually turned into ballad measure. Um, so if you know any ballads, they will often alternate eight-syllable lines with six-syllable lines. And so eight and six is actually taking a 14-syllable line and dividing it into an eight-syllable line and a six-syllable line. Um, and that adds rhymes because you have a rhyme at the end of the eight-syllable line and a rhyme at the end of the six-syllable line. Um, so that's why it's not just the same thing laid out differently. Here the rhymes are only every 14 syllables. So, and now the 11th time, or the 11th time, Lucifer had mustered in the sky the heavenly host. So it's the 11th time that Lucifer, anyone know what Lucifer is there? Anyone know what Lucifer is when it's not Satan? What is it? Angel? No. Um, it's the name of, do you know, Prue? Like Archangel? It's not an angel. That's not what you're referring to. No, it's, it's, it's um, this is a personification of something that we see, we can see half the nights of the year. Oh, it's right. Oh, okay. It's the west, it's, it's the evening star. It's Venus. Um, Lucifer is the name of the evening star. It means light carrier. Um, how it got to mean Satan is because of a verse in Isaiah, um, which was then reinterpreted by the New Testament. Um, but Lucifer simply means light bearer, and Lucifer is the evening star. Um, and people tend not to call it Lucifer anymore because of the association with Satan. Um, but it's the evening star, the first star you see in the sky after the sun sets. And it is... Um, bearing sunlight. Um, they didn't know this, but you always see Lucifer right after sunset. You always see Venus right after sunset because it sets shortly after the sun does. And um, what it is, is it's keeping this beautiful light. It's the brightest star in the sky, keeping this beautiful light um, shining even after 
um, the sun has set. And therefore, um, Lu Lucy from Lux, um, meaning light, and um, fur meaning from pharaoh meaning to carry or to bear as in the word transfer which means to carry across um, or infer which means to carry in so lucifer means to carry light um just were you going to say something okay um so lucifer had mustered in the sky the heavenly host that is the stars are coming out that's a poetic way of saying the stars are coming out Lucifer, the light bearer, is mustering, bringing out all the other stars. Lucifer had mustered in the sky the heavenly host. Um, when Midas comes to Lydia jokingly or jocund lie, um, and yields the old Selenus to his foster child. So Midas brings Bacchus to his um, uh, mentor, Selenus. He glad that his foster father had eftsoons recovered, bad King Midas ask him what he would. So now um, Bacchus is going to give Midas um, whatever he wants. Right glad of that was he, and not a wit at latter and the better, but not a wit at latter and the better should he be. So he was glad he could get whatever he wanted, but, says Ovid, Things are not going to go well for him when he gets what he wants. Um, he, minding to misuse his gifts, said, Grant that all and some the which my body toucheth bear may yellow gold become. So anything any part of my body touches, let it turn into gold. So this is the familiar story, right? Is this unfamiliar to anyone, the story of Midas turning everything into gold? The Midas touch, okay. Um, may yellow gold become. God back is granting his request, his hurtful gift performed, and that he had not better wished, he in his stomach stormed. So Bacchus is not happy about this, um, but the king is. Rejoicing in his harm away, sorry, rejoicing in his harm Away full merry goes the king, and for to try his promise true, he toucheth everything. Scarce giving credit to himself, he pulled young greena twigs from off an home tree, by and by all golden were the sprigs. So here's a tiny little explanation of a myth, which is why a certain kind of tree when its sprigs start coming out, when it starts growing, when you have um, new seedlings of this tree, why, uh, unlike any other tree, are these seedlings golden rather than green? It's just a tiny observation, but it turns out it's because Midas was grabbing them, and so he turned them into gold. Um, he took a flintstone from the ground. The stone likewise became pure gold or the stone likewise became pure gold. He touched next a clod of earth, and straight the same, by force of touching, did become a wedge of yellow gold. He gathered ears of ripened corn. Immediately, behold, the corn was gold. An apple, then, he pulled from a tree. Ye would have thought the Hesperids had given it him. 
So the Hesperides is the garden where the golden apples are said to grow. Um, if you know Ray Brad, if you know the Ray Bradbury um, titled "The Golden Apples of the Sun," um, comes from a Yeats poem and "Pluck till time and times are done the silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun." Uh, the golden apples of the sun are the um, apples of the Hesperides. Um, if he on pillars high, his fingers laid, they glistered like the sun. The water where he washes hands did from his hands so run as Danai might have been therewith beguiled. Anyone know who Danai is? Is she the golden Yes. Yeah, so Zeus, she's, she's locked up in a tower, but Zeus comes to her as a shower of golden rain. Um, and that golden rain is, um, Trump would have liked um, because uh, it impregnates her. Um, so you can tell where it's coming from. Um, so here, the way Ovid is describing it is that um, the water that's, that's running off of Midas's hand when he washes his hands, it turns into gold. And Danai would have thought it was hot um, because she's attracted to um, Zeus, who is a shower of golden rain. And um, the water coming off of Midas's hand looks exactly the same way. Um, he scarce could hold his passing joys within his heart for making things all gold. While he thus joyed, his officers did spread the board anon, that is, they put his food out for him to eat, um, as in bed and board. Um, while he thus joyed, his officers did spread the board anon and set down sundry sorts of meat and manchiat thereupon. Uh, manchiat is a kind of bread. Um, then, whither his hand did touch the bread, the bread was massy gold, or whither he chewed with hungry teeth his meat, ye might behold the piece of meat between his jaws, a plate of gold to be. So he eats meat, it turns to gold. He can't eat, he's going to starve to death. Um, you can see why Aristotle would find this so interesting, because this is exactly what Aristotle has said, that you can have all this gold and still starve to death. And that's what's happening to Midas. In drinking wine and water mixed, ye might discern and see the liquid gold run down his throat. Amazed at the strange mischance, and being both a wretch and rich. So what Golding is doing there is bringing the echo of the word wretch and rich together um, to make the point. Being both a wretch and rich, he wished to change his riches for his former state. And now he did abhor the thing which even but late before he chiefly longed for. Nay, meat, his hunger slakes. <coughs> his throat is shrunken up with thirst. And justly doth his hateful gold torment him as accursed. Then lifting up his sorry arms and hands to heaven, he cried, O oh, Father, Bacchus, pardon me, my sin I will not hide. Have mercy, I beseech thee, and vouchsafe to rid me quite from this same harm that seems so good and glorious unto sight. The gentle Bacchus, straight upon confession of his crime, restored Midas to the state he had, he had in former time. So 
Bacchus is nice to Midas, he's restored to his former state, and having made performance of his promise, he bereft him the gift that he had granted him. And least he should have left him bedawed with the dregs of that same gold which wickedly he wished he wished it had. He willed him to get him by and by to that great river which doth run by Sardis town. So um, in order to get rid of the little bits of gold that are still stuck to him, Bacchus says, go to this river. Um, it is the ancient name for that river was the Palicos. Go to the river which goes by Sardis. This is all in Asia Minor. Do you know where it is now? Do I know where Sardis is. Yeah, but it's got a modern name. Um, anyhow. Um, it does. Um, so go there. Um, and there along the channel up the stream his open arms to bear until he cometh to the spring. So he's supposed to walk up the stream till he comes to the place where it springs out. Um, till he cometh to the spring, and then his head, too, put full underneath the foaming spout where greatest was the gut, and so in washing of his limbs to wash away his crime, the king, as was commanded him, against the stream did climb, and straight the power of making gold departing quite from him infects the river. So he washes off the power of making gold, but now the river turns into something that turns things into gold, making it with golden stream to swim, the force whereof the banks about so soak it in their veins that even as yet the yellow gold upon the clods remains. So the story here, the myth or the, the metamorphosis into something recognizable now is that the river that goes by Sardis, um, as I say, the, the Pecolos or Pecolocus or something, um, is a place where in ancient times they panned for gold because lots and lots of gold, it was a river that, that, um, that, that um, um, carried lots and lots of gold dust. So they panned for gold in ancient times. In fact, what the river had was something called electrum. Do people know what electrum is? It's an alloy of gold and silver. And it was in, the king of Sardis was King Croesus. Have you ever heard the phrase, rich is Croesus? So Croesus was the richest, um, uh, was known for his wealth as an ancient king. He was really, really rich until he was, no, until he was defeated um, by King Cyrus. Um, Croesus was rich because his metallurgists, for the first time, figured out how to separate gold from silver and how to purify electrum and turn it into pure gold and turn the other part into pure silver. And what they then did was they invented coining. So it was in the ancient world, in um, ancient Asia Minor, um, coining has been invented um, separately in many places, but in Asia Minor, coining was invented um, by Croesus's metallurgists. So the, the story that, that um, Ovid is telling about um, how this became a place to get gold is a story even more connected to what Aristotle was saying than you might have realized because it's the place, it, that is the place where coins were invented. So the story of King Midas turns into the story of the invention 
the mining um, through through um, um, panning for gold um, or for electrum, and then the invention of gold. Um, okay, we'll talk um, a bit about Chaucer and about Spencer, and also that great Kawabata story on um, Monday. Um, bring this in again because there's one other paragraph from Aristotle we need to look at. Now, okay. <laughs> 